Uh, we're in the book of Numbers at the moment, and it's a book that I think is often not given a whole lot of attention. And I don't know what you, when you hear of the book of Numbers, what pictures come into your mind, but often I, I think we think of the book of Numbers as being a book filled with lists numbering the people. It's a bit of a strange title for the book, Numbers, because the Hebrew name for this book was actually In the Wilderness or In the Desert. That was the name of the book. And because this book tells the tales of Israel's arduous and long journey from Egypt to the Promised Land. And it's full of stories from that time period. And it's filled with stories about the challenges they face along the way. So there's challenges that they face from without, external challenges, and also challenges from within their own community. And all through the book, there are these stories that almost come across as threats to Israel's existence. There's violent enemies, mighty nations, starvation and thirst, rebellion and mutiny, venomous snakes, even spiritual attacks from a nearby shaman. And this book is far more relevant for us today than we often realise, I think, because the New Testament authors speak of Israel's wilderness journey as a metaphor for our lives today. So like Israel, God is taking us on a journey towards the new creation. And while that destiny is secure and we belong in God's promised land, our lived experience often feels like we are wandering through the desert with troubles surrounding us. Though we've tasted the fruit of God's goodness, we can often feel parched and hungry as we grieve and lament that life is not as it should be. And the questions that this book leaves for us are similar to the questions it left for Israel. To whom will we turn when trouble overwhelms us? Where will our thirst be quenched and our hunger sated when we feel the parched heat of difficult life-sapping days? Where will we find life when everything around us looks like death? So as we explore some of these questions in this passage today, let's turn to God in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are present with us right now, that your spirit is at work in our midst. Lord, may you transform our hearts. May you, may you bring your word alive to us. And may you continue to form us as a family evermore in the image of our Lord Jesus. Still our hearts that we might hear from you now. Amen. So there's moments in life where our circumstances can overwhelm us. I remember as a teenager spending a day in a slum community in Zimbabwe, visiting families and hearing their stories. And it's an experience that I will never forget. I remember the tin shacks and the dirt floors where families of 10 would cramp together in a small room, which was their shared bedroom and kitchen. 
I remember the rats running rampant around the area, the garbage and the sewage and the smell. I remember a family pleading to my parents that we take their daughter home with us to Australia so that she could escape a life with no hope. I remember people asking us to pray through tears, desperate in their need. I often think about that day. And I've often wondered how the people of that community could put one foot in front of another when everything around them looked so frightening and so hopeless. How were they not overcome by it all? Because on that day, as I looked around, all I could see was the overwhelming horror of the threats around the slums. Everything seemed to sap life away. But it's not just in a slum community that we might feel overwhelmed by our circumstances. You might have experienced losing someone dear to you and struggled through those many days where it's hard to believe you could ever smile again. Or you might have wrestled with the diagnosis of a disease or illness that means life is changed forever. Maybe you felt despair when family life seems to be falling apart and you just can't see a way of mending fractured relationships. Or perhaps the desert seems endless as you attend too many funerals as you grow older. Maybe you've had the experience of being a new parent or a new grandparent and of being overwhelmed suddenly by worry and anxiety as everything suddenly becomes a potential threat to that new little life. In these parched, deserty times of life, we can be overcome by our immediate circumstances. Our eyes can become so fixed on the threats around us that it's difficult to see anything but those threats. Faith can be hard in the desert when all we can see is dust. Faith was hard for Israel in the desert too. In our story today, Israel have been wandering around in the desert for many years, back and forth, going around in circles. But the threats in the desert weren't just lack of food and water. The wilderness they travelled in was surrounded by powerful and not always friendly nations. Just before our story today, Israel have approached the nation of Edom and asked for safe passage through their lands. And in response, the Edomites gathered an army and chased away the Israelites who fled for their life and had to take the long way around Edom right through the heart of the desert. And so as this story takes place, many of the Israelite people have perished in the desert. Aaron himself has died and a new younger generation is growing up to become the new leaders of this wandering people. And as they wander about, troubles press in on them from every side. And not for the first time, it all becomes simply too much. Look at verses 4 and 5 if you have your Bibles there. It says, But the people grew impatient on the way. 
They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread. There is no water. And we detest this miserable food. Now, the Israelites are described as being impatient here, but I don't think the word impatient really captures the full range of emotions that they're feeling because that Hebrew word could be interpreted as them being frustrated or angry or impatient or even terrified. And and it's in this anxious state that they look around them and the reality of their circumstances closes in. The heat becomes unbearable. The dust becomes suffocating. The other nations become giants in their eyes. And they give in to despair as the desert overwhelms them. We are going to die. In their despairing eyes, the desert holds the power of life and death over Israel. They see themselves entirely at the mercy of the forces of nature around them. Their fate, it seems, is inevitable. So it might seem particularly cruel that God compounds their fear and complaining by sending venomous snakes into their camp. And if we read this story as a standalone random event, God might come across as callous and punitive. You step out of line, I punish you. That's how we could read this passage. But we've seen through the biblical story already that God is working to form Israel into his holy people. His actions are consistently about shaping them and moulding their hearts to be his treasured possession. His judgments and his protective grace both flow from a deep love for Israel and his creation. These are the people who are going to carry forward God's promises to Abraham. So why snakes? Why send snakes? The snake was full of symbolic meaning for Israel. From the beginning of scripture, we see the serpent is associated with death. The serpent in the garden lures Adam and Eve towards disobedience and away from the tree of life. Snakes are described in Leviticus as being unclean animals to stay away from. So in the collective imaginations of the Israelite people, in their literature and in the oral traditions passed down from generation to generation, Snakes were a symbol of death. Snakes were synonymous with death. And of course, here in this story, the snakes caused the deaths of many of the Israelites. If the people weren't already overwhelmed by their circumstances and despairing of life, now these fiery snakes, the very symbol of death, had filled their camp. Surely, They were done for now. So in desperation, the people of Israel realise that they've got it wrong and they cry out to God for help. But God's response is kind of bizarre and a little bit confusing. 
But, but notice, first of all, what the people of Israel actually cry out for. What is it that they ask God for? They ask that the snakes would be taken away. They wanted this symbol of death to be removed from them and taken right out of their sight. They didn't want to be anywhere near these snakes. They were unsettling and a threat to life. But rather than take the snakes away, God adds another snake. And not only does he add another bronze snake, he tells the people they must look at it to be saved. Look at verse 8. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So to find life, Israel would have to gaze at death. This symbol of suffering becomes the focus of their faith. Time and time again through the book of Numbers, on this wilderness journey, God had been showing Israel that the desert didn't actually control life or death. Their circumstances, no matter how dire it got, were never the final word while God was present with them. Over and over, God provided for them in their hunger and their thirst. In fact, in the very last chapter of Numbers, God made water burst forth of a ro- out of a rock in the desert. He rained bread from heaven. He provided quail for them to eat. God rescued from them from their enemies in miraculous ways time and time again. God was teaching Israel to see that life and death is not controlled by desert heat or by dust or idols or other nations or even snakes. Life is in the hands of God alone. And God calls his people to trust him when the land is flowing with milk and honey, but also when the ground is parched and trouble looms. And this bronze snake represented this very lesson to Israel. Every time they gazed upon the bronze serpent, they were reminded again that life is in the hands of their God who treasures them. Because even a snake, the very symbol of death, can be moulded by the hands of God to become a means by which he will bring life. Snakes do not control life. Deserts do not control life. Mighty warriors with chariots do not control life. God does. And he often takes the very things that look like death and turns them into life. And so this bronze serpent, it's, it's no idol for the people to worship. It's a poignant reminder that God alone is to be feared and worshipped. That even death can become life while they walk in the loving presence of their life-giving God. The story of the bronze serpent appears two more times in scripture. 
Once in the book of Kings, in a sad story where King Hezekiah smashes the pole to pieces because the people have started to worship it as a god. But then Jesus refers to this bronze snake again in John chapter 3 that we read earlier, where he says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Have you ever considered just how strange it is that the most prominent symbol in Christianity is the symbol of a cross? It's an ancient torture device. The cross was the Roman symbol of death and suffering. And yet for Christians today, the cross represents grace, forgiveness, hope and love. In the desert, God's healing word transformed a symbol of death into a symbol of life. And Jesus, God's healing word become flesh, would transform a symbol of death into a symbol of life. And Jesus would show us again, would show to the whole world that life is not in the hands of Rome. Not in the hands of any empire or king or power. Not in the hands of torturers or slave drivers or lack of food or clothing. Not in the tragedy of slum life or the dark shadows of grief. Not in the sleepless nights or the panic attacks. Life is in the hands of our Lord Jesus. And even death itself becomes life in his hands. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Lift up your gaze to the suffering servant. I want to suggest that one of the challenges for us today is to ask the question, who or what holds the power of life and death over us? I remember when my son Hamish was young, I gave him a cashew to eat, which resulted in a trip in the ambulance as he developed an anaphylactic reaction. For the next few months, that little nut became a symbol of life and death for me. I lay awake at night worrying for him. We meticulously checked every piece of food that he ate and watched him like a hawk. I'd hear a bump in the night and be unable to go back to bed until I'd gone into his room and put my hand on his chest to check that he was breathing. I found it very hard to hand that fear over and trust God during that time. And I knew that my anxiety wasn't doing anything to help. But I couldn't shake the feeling that we were at the mercy of one mistaken bite of food or one moment of misfortune. And I think one of the things that I'm slowly learning in life is that these wilderness moments where threats press against us are rarely, if ever, moments where we suddenly flick a switch and start trusting God. They're often long, difficult journeys of placing one foot in front of another and 
cumulatively over our lives, God grows us to trust him more and more as we look back and see he was walking with us and extending grace. And so my prayer is that by journey's end, I will have learned to trust God for life a little more than I do right now. But what about you? What holds the power of life and death for you? What tends to overwhelm you? What does your wilderness look like? Is it the fear of being stuck in unemployment with a lack of direction? Or an irrational feeling of lacking worth? Is it the fear of age and a weary body creeping up on you at endless doctor's visits? Is it grief at this moment or depression that makes you feel like you're trapped in a shadowy bubble that's closing in and sometimes makes it hard to breathe? Is it a fight with a sibling or being agonisingly separated from a loved one or something as seemingly insignificant as a cashew nut? God has something to say to each of us today. He says, my dear child, I hold the river of life in my hand and I long to share it with all who will drink. Look to my suffering son and know that because I walk with you, even dry rocks in the desert will burst forth with water when you least expect it. Trust me a little more today than yesterday. A little more tomorrow than today. I'd like to share one more part of my story from the slums in Zimbabwe. Because while I was there, I noticed something else other than the overwhelming tragedy. I saw so many smiles and much laughter. And I remember thinking at the time, how can these people smile here? This laughter seemed so out of place. And as we sat down and listened to their stories, time and time again they would be overjoyed as we prayed for them and many of them shared with us their faith in God. These people had somehow learned to trust God in the driest of deserts. Jesus had transformed their wilderness to be a place where the waters of hope could be found. We were there for a short-term mission trip, but I often look back at that time and wonder who was really ministering to who. And it reminds me that one of the greatest gifts we have is that we don't ever walk through the deserts of life alone. God has gathered us together on this journey, given us one another. We're on this pilgrimage as a family and one of the greatest gifts we can offer to each other is to continually lift up our suffering servant in our words and our acts of self-sacrifice for one another. Perhaps God wants you to be the water out of a rock for one of your brothers and sisters tonight. And it's as we enter into each other's wilderness experiences that we see God at work. 
And he teaches us to see life a little bit differently. Maybe there is hope in the desert after all. Maybe the things that overwhelm us can also teach us to trust. I'd like to finish with with this quote by a lady named Marlene Graves, whose own life has been a long struggle through the wilderness. She writes, The wilderness has a way of curing our illusions about ourselves and teaching us to depend more and more on God. When we first enter, we're convinced we've entered the bowels of hell. But on our pilgrimage, we discover that the desert drips with the divine. We discover that desert land is fertile ground for spiritual activity, transformation and renewal. Whatever your wilderness looks like right now or in the future, may you know that Jesus walks beside you and he knows the troubles of the desert oh so well. Let me pray now that we would learn step by step to trust the one who offers life and hope in our wilderness. Let's pray. Lord God, we often feel overwhelmed in life. There is so much beyond our control. So often we feel like we're at the mercy of the world around us, of sicknesses and diseases like COVID, of floods and rain, of things that we just simply can't control and don't have the answers to. And Lord, it's tempting to give in to despair. But Lord, you are the God of life. You hold life in your hands and you are present with us. Thank you for your son, Jesus, who shows us that even death itself can become life in your hands. May you teach us to trust you a little more each day. Amen.